Welcome to this program, Demystifying the Nature of Biofilms. My name is Gregory Schultz, and I'm Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Director of the Institute for Wound Research at the University of Florida. And it is my uh, great uh, pleasure to also welcome Dr. Garth James, who is Associate Research Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biological Engineering, um, and is the Medical Projects Manager for the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University. Dr. James and I uh, have no relevant financial relationships to disclose for this webinar. This program is approved for one CME, CNE, and CPME credit. And at the end, you will be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation. Then you can download or print your certificate. The program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Edu Education, which is an HMP company. And this program is supported by an educational grant from Next Science. The overall learning objectives for this combined presentation is first to review where biofilm fits into the bioburden spectrum of contamination, colonization, critical colonization or localized infection, and true infection. Also, we want to explain how chronic inflammation leads to elevated levels of proteases and reactive oxygen species and how they impair healing in wounds. Dr. James will then differentiate between planktonic and biofilm bacteria in terms of tolerance to antibiotics and antimicrobials, which is a really critical piece of information for clinicians to appreciate. And then Dr. James will also explore the polymicrobial nature of wound biofilms. So let's start with just getting some basic background of bacterial biofilm terminology. First, planktonic bacteria. Well, those are the single, non-attached, rapidly dividing and metabolizing bacteria that you all studied in microbiology class and probably seeded onto auger plates and made colonies. And those are the single planktonic bacteria. In contrast, those same planktonic bacteria can convert into the biofilm phenotype of bacteria. And this is a structured community of bacterial cells that are enclosed in a self-produced exopolymeric matrix that is tightly adherent to or sessile to living or inert structures. Now, the key part or con concept of how planktonic bacteria convert into biofilm bacteria is the process called quorum sensing. So bacteria secrete small, unique molecules that have receptors on the bacteria membranes. And when the level of the quorum molecules gets to a high enough level, that is a quorum, then it will change the pattern of gene expression in the bacteria and shift their growth from the planktonic to the biofilm phenotypes. One of the key differences and results of this quorum sensing is the production of an exopolymeric matrix of the biofilm. And this consists predominantly of uh, unique polysaccharides along with bacterial extracellular or free DNA and proteins, which are extremely inflammatory to both our innate immune system, our toll-like receptor system, as well as our acquired or adaptive uh, immune systems. Now, the reason bacteria evolved this ability to convert from planktonic to biofilm bacteria wasn't just to cause chronic wounds in humans. It actually uh, was an evolutionary defense by the planktonic bacteria uh, over a billion years ago in their evolutionary history to help them evade or to have a defense against their natural predators, which were the bacteria viruses, the so-called bacteriophages, or amoebas, those big single-cell organisms that eat bacteria, as well as other microbicides that competing bacteria would secrete. 
Now, unfortunately, that evolutionary defense that the planktonic bacteria evolved to evade their natural predators also protects them against our inflammatory cells, our phagocytic cells like the amoebas that, that engulf and kill bacteria. And unfortunately, it also gives them some protection against our natural antibodies, our natural reactive oxygen species, as well as antibiotics, <clears throat> antiseptics, and many disinfectants. Another really key concept to understand that Dr. James will go into is the idea of quiescent bacteria within established biofilms. And this refers to the bacteria that are not metabolically active within the biofilm community. And these uh, metabolically dormant or quiescent bacteria are not effectively killed by antibiotics because a key thing for you to appreciate is that antibiotics really only kill metabolically active bacteria. They kill them by interfering with the essential bacterial enzyme systems, transport systems, etc. And so if the bacteria are not metabolically active, that is they're quiescent and dormant, then the antibiotics, as Dr. James will show you, are not highly effective. So what is a biofilm, and how is it different than the planktonic bacteria, and how does it fit into this bio-burden curve? In this slide, you can see in panel A a light micrograph of a culture of predominantly planktonic single bacteria. Those are all those little uh, red, red or green uh, rods or cones. And you can see in panel B when the, the planktonic bacteria have gotten to a high enough density in quorum sense, shifted their pattern of gene expression, then they will begin to take much of their energy and use it to synthesize and generate the exopolymeric matrix, the biofilm matrix shown in panel B, that big glob of uh, the biofilm community. Now within the bio-burden spectrum shown in panel C, you can see at the left side of that the contamination and colonization levels. Now those are essentially planktonic bacteria that are present and may be slowly dividing, but they're not causing such a problem in the wound that the wound is impaired from healing. And we all know this, every time we get a cut, on our skin, most of the time it is healing without significant delay. But if the bacteria, the planktonic bacteria, are able to attach in quorum sense and evade our natural uh, immune system or our exogenous antimicrobials, they can eventually begin to convert into the biofilm. And the biofilm is able, as you'll see, to be able to um, survive exposure to these types of antimicrobials, and eventually they can produce enough mass and enough planktonic bacteria that they will cause true spreading or systemic infection, and, and that's basically sepsis. But the key for us to understand is that between these levels of present but not hurting the wound or the right end, the true spreading systemic infection, is the area that was called critical colonization or localized infection. And basically, we now know that this was an attempt to try to describe a condition where there weren't very many culturable planktonic bacteria, but there was still an enormous inflammatory immune response. And we now know that that is predominantly due to the presence of the biofilm in the wound bed. So biofilms, what are they? What do they look like and, and how common are they? Well, um, it turns out that they're very commonly found in most chronic skin wounds once the wound has really progressed to uh, a static or, or extremely slow healing state. 
So initial uh, meta-analysis that we'll look at in a little more detail by Matt Malone and colleagues indicated that biofilms can be identified in about 80% of the biopsies of chronic wounds, but only in a few percentage of acute wounds. So in panel A, you see a cross-section of a biopsy through a chronic wound. The dark uh, blue or purple staining is actually detecting both planktonic bacteria and microcolonies of bacteria at the surface of the wound bed, but also deeper down you see this very large mass of dark uh, blue staining or purple staining bacteria. And that's, that's a, a, essentially a biofilm that is under the surface of the wound bed. And in panel D, you can see again, when biofilms forms on surfaces, it's not in most cases this wonderfully smooth, flat, uniform surface of the biofilm, but there are regions where the biofilm is very uh, uh, high concentration, very dominant, and other areas where, as we'll see in additional slides, where the biofilm or the planktonic bacteria may be relatively minimal. And in the middle panel C, you can see what a scanning electron micrograph image of a biofilm looks like on a biopsy of a chronic wound. So that big mass of cells aggregated in the, in the center and uh, basically encased within the matrix material um, is the physical representation of what a biofilm on a surface of a wound actually looks like. Now another important thing for us to realize in panel E, you can see a biofilm grown in the lab, but in between the bacteria that are those green stained rods are this mesh of red staining material. Well, that's actually free extracellular bacterial DNA that has been released by the bugs um, as they disintegrate and, and begin to form some components of the myofilm matrix. Now, that's important for us to realize, as I say, because our toll-like receptor system, our innate immune system, has developed our evolutionary defense against biofilms and our toll-like receptor 7 system actually recognizes unique sequences within that free extracellular bacterial DNA to rapidly activate our um, uh, innate immune cells. And those sequences of the DNA are not present in our DNA, so it's a very specific response uniquely to uh, DNA sequences within bacterial extracellular DNA. Now, another important concept to understand about the biofilm is that it's not located just on the surface of the wound bed. In fact, wonderful data from Dr. Joan Holt's laboratory uh, at University of Copenhagen published data that showed in panel A that when biopsies of chronic wounds are stained with an antibody that picks up Staph aureus biofilm, you can see that beneath the surface of the of the biopsy, the, the arrows at the surface, you can see immunostaining for Staph aureus bacteria in biofilms. And similarly, in panel B, an immunostaining of Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilm, again, beneath the surface of the wound bed. And when they actually measured this, they found that on average, Staph aureus is about 20 to 30 microns beneath the surface of the wound bed. Pseudomonas being uh, a more active penetrating and more modal bacteria actually is usually about 50 to 60 microns on average from the surface of the wound bed. In addition, uh, the distribution of biofilm on the surface of a wound bed, uh, as well as planktonic bacteria, is not uniform. It's not just a single sheet. And to demonstrate this, again, uh, personnel, Dr. Uh, Thompson from Dr. Jarnholz's laboratory took biopsies at the four major clock hours as well as in the center of chronic wounds and measured the level of bacteria, including biofilm bacteria. And what you can see is that the distribution is quite variable because in the position number four, uh, number six, there's 8,000 colony forming units uh, per biopsy, but in position 12, directly across the wound bed, there were only 15 colony forming units. So again, showing that the distribution is not uniform across most wound beds. Trying to assemble data from multiple studies, uh, uh, Dr. Per uh, Percival uh, also indicated in a great review article that 
it's possible to find both planktonic as well as biofilm in multiple locations within a, a wound. For example, they can certainly be present on the surface of the wound bed, both planktonic and biofilm. They can be beneath the surface of the wound bed. They can also be present in the wound slough, the uh, material that is being um, secreted and excreted from the wound bed, and both planktonic and biofilm bacteria can be found within wound slough. But even more important for us to understand is that wound dressings are also a great source for bacteria growing in the wound dressing if the wound dressing does not contain any antimicrobial. And those planktonic and biofilm, particularly the microcolonies from the biofilm, can shed out of the wound dressing or the wound slough and recolonize the surface of the wound bed. So that's, it's important to understand that the bacteria, both planktonic and biofilm, are present at multiple locations in a wound in the slough and in the wound dressing, and eventually may even, planktonic bacteria may even penetrate uh, into the capillary systems and cause spreading infection. A critical part for us to understand is, is how robust are the data that indicate where and the amount of biofilm that, that can be detected in chronic wounds. So again, Matt Malone's group looked at um, a series of nine chronic wound biofilm studies that have been published and did a meta-analysis and established that the uh, biofilm is present in an incredibly high percentage of the biopsies. Again, approximately about 80%, as you can see in the graph on the right side of the image. Well, biofilms are not present just in chronic skin wounds. And this excellent review by DePozo and colleague Patel in 2007 listed 18 different clinical pathologies that have been robustly identified as having biofilms that contribute to the chronic inflammation. And just a couple of examples of these, for example, chronic sinusitis is a biofilm-based uh, infection uh, that causes inflammation in, in our sinuses on, on the surface and under the surface of the sinus uh, mucosal epithelium. Every tube or catheter that goes through the skin eventually develops a bacterial presence and a biofilm. So dialysis catheter and urinary catheters, these frequently, um, as they develop a biofilm, lead to the inflammation that is uh, detected in, in those types of conditions. Finally, and our orthopedic colleagues uh, have shown that essentially osteomyelitis is a biofilm-based disease on the surface of the bone or on the surrounding soft tissue, and especially on the titanium implants. When there is a, an infection on the implant, it has been repeatedly demonstrated that they are bacteria biofilm communities attached to the orthopedic implant which unfortunately right now the standard is those orthopedic infected implants have to essentially be removed and replaced because again of the difficulty of killing biofilms. Well, I've given you arguments that biofilm structures can be detected in, in a very high percent of chronic wound biopsies, maybe 80%. There's all of these other chronic inflammations that uh, are uh, characterized by having biofilms present. but is this just coincidental? Do biofilms actually impair healing, or is it just coincidental? Are they just present and are not really major factors in causing the impairment of healing in skin wounds? Well, this was a, 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 a critical experiment that was done by Tom Musto's laboratory and Dr. Cheryl, where they created full thickness punch wounds in the backs of healthy mice and inoculated them with wild type Staph aureus or Staph epidermidis as shown in the upper panel. And as you can see in the right panels, the inoculated wounds formed massive biofilms 
And when the wound healing was measured, the presence of the biofilms actually impaired healing. But hopefully you're still saying, well, that still could just be coincidental. Prove that it is the formation of the biofilm and the inflammation caused by the biofilm that's actually responsible for that delay in healing. So in the lower graph panel, what they did was really critical because they repeated the experiment, but they also simultaneously treated the planktonic bacteria with an inhibitor of the quorum sensing system. So this RIP peptide is enormously specific just for blocking the quorum receptor. And when they prevented those planktonic bacteria only from forming a biofilm, now there is no delay in wound healing because the mouse's robust immune system can deal with the planktonic bacteria and prevent them from forming the biofilm that persists and causes inflammation. So how do these biofilms impair healing? Well, this review by Bill Costerton, who's the person who actually coined the term biofilm, actually showed a great example of conceptually how the biofilms impair healing. And in the panel A, you can see the white oval planktonic bugs contaminating uh, a wound or an orthopedic implant. And you can see that our antibodies, as well as our antibiotics, the little uh, gray Xs, as well as our neutrophils and macrophages, our phagocytic inflammatory cells, are able, under those conditions of planktonic bacteria, to basically recognize, kill, the planktonic bugs and prevent them from really progressing in that biofilm spectrum. But in panel B, you can see if some of the planktonic bugs attach, quorum sense, begin to form this protective exopolymeric matrix of the biofilm, now our antibodies, the little yellow Ys, as well as our antibiotics and our neutrophils and macrophages have difficulty engulfing and killing and also um, our antibiotics from penetrating and killing the biofilm. So finally, in panel D, what you can see is that the inflammatory response is still extremely robust for those reasons we talked about before. So they still continue to release the phagocytic enzymes, especially the proteases and the reactive oxygen species. And it is those proteases and reactive oxygen species that I'll show you that cause the damage to the proteins that are essential for healing and the wound stops healing. Now oxidative stress, like proteases, is a two-edged sword. We need an adequate level of oxidative stress because the neutrophils and macrophages generate reactive oxygen species when they engulf in, uh, the bacteria and they use the reactive oxygen species to kill the bugs, the, the uh, hydrogen peroxide and the hypochlorous acid that they generate. On the other hand, if the reactive oxygen species production is at an inappropriate place or for too long or at too high a level, just like as I'll show you with the proteases, they begin to degrade proteins and processes uh, that are essential for healing, and the wound becomes chronic. Similarly to the reactive oxygen species, if we look at the level of proteases, particularly the matrix metalloproteases, or MMPs, you can see in the left panel that when we measure the level of active proteases in acute healing wounds, the levels are low, about a microgram per mil. In contrast, when we measure the level of protease activities in a series of wound fluids collected from multiple patients, you can see that they're higher. They're on average about 50 times higher. And in the right-hand panel, it's only when those patients' protease levels begin to decrease uh, in each patient by good wound care that the wounds begin to heal. So this shows a very tight correlation between the level of proteases and the ability to heal the wound. In fact, in clinical trials, we've been able to show that patients who enter the clinical studies but have high initial levels of proteases, shown in the red line, they take much longer to begin to heal their wounds uh, during the month of the clinical trial compared to the patients whose levels of proteases at the start of the trial 
were uh, at lower levels. So really, it takes those wounds longer to normalize their level of proteases to begin to heal. And I'll quickly show you just three examples of individual patients. So here, the level of the wound area in red for this patient over a three-month period begins to decline. The proteases are also declining, shown in the blue, and this patient gets good protease and inflammation management and the wounds heal. In contrast, this patient's uh, wound area actually increased and the proteases were also increasing. So this shows that when the proteases increased in that patient, the wounds uh, failed to heal. And then typically what happens in some patients is Again, in the red line, the wound begins to heal, the proteases are decreasing, and then after a couple of weeks, the wound just stalls. And what's happening is the protease levels in that patient are shooting back up, and it's not until the patient got good debridement that the protease levels began to drop, and then the wound went on to heal again. So this shows the very tight temporal correlation between proteases and wound healing. Now, if we just look at a huge number of patients across uh, uh, several clinical studies, you can see that when we measure the level of proteases that the, there is no healing in those wounds the following week when the protease levels are high. But when the wounds decrease their protease activities, then they begin to heal. Now, in some cases, the protease levels are still low, but they're not healing. And that's because there are other activities and conditions that can impair healing, such as not adequate offloading or not correcting an ischemic area within the wound. Well, I'll show you just two quick examples of what these proteases do to impair healing. So if we look at a key growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor, or PDGF, you can see in the left-hand panel A that the immunostaining or the amount of PDGF in normal skin is very low because there isn't a wound. And they're just doing maintenance uh, turnover uh, and synthesis of the, of the uh, proteins. In contrast, when in the uh, purple you see a healing acute wound, now there's lots of brown immunostaining, high levels of PDGF. In contrast, when we see a chronic wound, there's almost no staining of PDGF because it's being proteolytically broken down. But when that chronic wound gets good care, Inflammation, proteases drop, now the levels of PDGF reappear in massively higher levels of brown staining and the wound heals. Well, what about critical extracellular matrix proteins? Well, a critical protein is fibronectin, and it is critical for epithelial cell migration. So in the top panel, you can see that there is no intact fibronectin immunostaining in a chronic venous leg ulcer bed because the proteases are destroying it as soon as it gets made. But when that wound gets good wound care, inflammation drops, the proteases drop, now the fibronectin immunostaining is intense and the epithelial cells can migrate across the wound bed. So in summary, then, this has led to the concept of step-down then step-up treatment for chronic wounds. And essentially, this is capturing the idea of using a biofilm-based wound care in which the most aggressive, effective treatment to remove the biofilm, reduce the inflammation, reduce the proteases should be done at the start of treatment when a wound is not healing. Then as the inflammation decreases because the biofilm and uh, planktonic bugs are reduced, the proteases will drop, now the wound will begin to heal and we can step down in terms of the aggressiveness of debridement and the uh, effectiveness of the wound dressing against planktonic bacteria. Finally, if the wound is healing fine under standard of care, okay, but if the patient needs additional advanced treatments to help accelerate healing, then we can step up to these advanced therapies like growth factors or skin grafts or combination of protein products, negative pressure wound therapy. And in addition to standard care, then those advanced treatment regimens work very well. So to help, uh, if you have additional questions, there is a biofilm made easy free download from Wound International and so that will expand upon and reinforce many of the uh, concepts and, and principles I've talked about uh, in this 
part of the presentation. So with that, I would uh, like to invite uh, Dr. Garth James to begin his discussion of the basic background of bacterial biofilms. Hi, I'm uh, Garth James from the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University. And I'm gonna talk to you about a couple topics today. Um, the first of which is why it's so hard to kill bacteria when they're in a biofilm. And so I'd just like to start with a definition of biofilm tolerance versus antibiotic resistance. And so biofilm tolerance results from growth in the biofilm state. And so it's phenotypic or the genes that the bacteria are expressing. And this is a little different than antibiotic resistance, which implies a heritable genetic change, like a mutation. And antibiotic resistance, there is some evidence that bacteria uh, develop antibiotic resistance more readily when they're in a biofilm than when they're planktonic. But in today's talk, I'm going to focus on biofilm tolerance. And here's an example of biofilm tolerance with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And it here treated with um, two different antibiotics, tobermycin and ciprofloxacin. And you see with planktonic bacteria, we get around a three log mean log reduction with tobermycin and about five log reduction with ciprofloxacin. However, when we treat exactly the same species and strain of bacteria when it's grown as a biofilm, then we get a one or less log reduction for each of those antibiotics. Now, if we break up that biofilm and disperse cells, then we regain susceptibility to that antibiotic. So there's no um, real change in the, in the organisms other than growing as a biofilm. And this tolerance to antibiotics and also other antimicrobial agents develops over time. And so you see here um, the upper blue dots are a control biofilm that hasn't been treated, and the um, darker blue dots are a biofilm that's been treated with a high dose of genomycin, about 200, to 200 times the minimum inhibitory concentration. And what we see is when the biofilm is treated at four hours or 24 hours, we get a log reduction um, around four logs. But then over time, we get less and less log reduction as the biofilm ages. And by 96 hours, we don't see really any effect of the antibiotic. And also, you know, farther out at 120 hours, we don't see any effect. So it develops. Um, relatively slowly over time. And this is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And you'll notice here, we see the same phenomenon, but Pseudomonas aeruginosa developed tolerance much more quickly than Staph aureus under the same conditions. And so here we're seeing a, a little over a two log reduction at um, eight hours. And then by 24 hours, there's not much effect at all of the antibiotic, uh, the bacteria aren't at all susceptible. And you notice there's not big changes in the um, in the control biofilm that increases over time, but the the control biofilm isn't that different at 24. But there is um, this development of tolerance as the biofilm ages or matures. And so now I'd like to cover some of the mechanisms by which this occurs. And there's multiple mechanisms, and some of it depends on the type of antimicrobial agent. This slide um, shows four of the mechanisms, and today I'm going to discuss the first three of those mechanisms, which are slow penetration, stress response, and altered microenvironment. And so one of the ways that we can study biofilms is to directly measure chemical in the biofilm using tiny microelectrodes. And these microelectrodes have tip sizes ranging from maybe around 10 microns to 50 microns. And we can actually insert those into the biofilm and directly take chemical measurements. And here's an example of that with hypochlorite or bleach. And um, we're 
um, treating a pseudomonas biofilm in this case. And you can see that the, the fluid outside the biofilm is around 1,000 milligrams per liter chlorine, but that concentration of chlorine quickly drops off as you enter the biofilm. And so on the x-axis there is the depth within the biofilm, and of course on the y-axis is the chlorine concentration. And at 47 seconds, by the time you get 600 microns into the biofilm, you can no longer detect any uh, chlorine. That improves a little bit. After 25 minutes of treatment, there's a small concentration of chlorine, but there's still a huge gradient as you enter into the biofilm. And even after 90 minutes of treatment, the chlorine concentration at the base of the biofilm is about half that um, that the biofilm's being treated with in the liquid above the biofilm. And the reason for this slow penetration is a reaction diffusion problem. And I've shown the equation here. The equation is, is not important, but the accumulation of the antibiotic is dependent on both how quickly it diffuses in through the biofilm and how much of it is reacting with the biofilm or how fast that reaction is. And so if, the, if these chemically reactive antimicrobials like bleach or hypochlorite, they're being consumed or, or reduced as they're oxidizing the biofilm. It's an oxidizing biofilm. And if that reaction is occurring faster than the antimicrobial can diffuse through the biofilm, then you get a decrease in the, in the concentration. Okay, the next mechanism I'd like to talk about is stress response. And for this example, I'm using peroxide. And peroxide is another oxidizing biofilm, so it's going to be subject to those same reaction diffusion limitations as hypochlorite. And in this case, we have one microelectrode that's in the fluid above the biofilm and another uh, microelectrode that's at the base of the biofilm. And then we're monitoring that for about 60 minutes. The exact, in this case, is, is time in seconds, but um, that's a, about an hour. And then we have hydrogen con uh, peroxide concentration. And you can see that the outside of the biofilm is about 50 millimolar hydrogen peroxide. That remains re relatively steady over the course of the experiment. But there's no hydrogen peroxide being detected at all at the base of the biofilm. And then at the end of the experiment, we take that microelectrode back out of the biofilm just to show that it's still working. And so, as I said, there's a reaction diffusion going on here, but there's something else going on here too, which is the stress response. And so this biofilm was Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It produces an enzyme called catalase, um, which actually breaks down the hydrogen peroxide. So due to reaction diffusion problems, some of the bacteria within the biofilm are exposed to a sublethal dose of hydrogen peroxide, and they respond by expressing genes that produce uh, this catalase enzyme. And so that is the stress response mechanism. So just in summary, with these chemically reactive antimicrobials, we can get poor penetration due to both reaction diffusion and stress response. And so now I want to talk about non-reactive or less reactive antimicrobial agents. And in this case, I'm using the example of daptomycin, which is an antibiotic that's often um, used for, um, to treat uh, staphylococcal infections. And as you can see from the diagram there, it is a rather large molecule. And we also labeled that with a fluorescent label, making it even even larger, but also enabling us to visualize it microscopically. Okay, and now this is a biofilm, um, Staphylococcus epidermidis, and it is growing uh, in, a, in a flow cell. And I'm going to switch over to fluorescence microscopy in a minute, but the biofilm will disappear when I do that against the black background, so I've just outlined the biofilm here. And then if I go to the next slide, and then you'll see the fluorescent antibiotic coming into the flow cell, and then it's slowly penetrating the biofilm. And by the end of the movie, which is 
um, six minutes in real time, that fluorescent antibiotic has completely penetrated the penetrated the biofilm. So even a large molecule, um, depending on charge and other factors, can pretty rapidly diffuse through the biofilm. And we're looking at a six-minute time course here, and antibiotics are typically used on time scales of days or weeks, and so we're talking minutes here. And Daptomycin is a relatively good antibiotic against biofilms, but it's nowhere near as effective against biofilms as it is against planktonic bacteria. And so obviously from this experiment, we see that, the, that it's not a penetration problem, and this is true for most antibiotics. So if I go back to my mechanisms, the reason why these antibiotics can penetrate but still don't kill the biofilm can be explained by an altered microenvironment. And so Again, here's using microelectrodes to measure chemical gradients within the biofilm. And in this case, we're measuring oxygen gradient through the biofilm. And we have three different species of bacteria, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Staph aureus, and group D enterococcus, and then all three species mixed together. And what you can see here is regardless of species or whether it's mixed species or polymicrobial, we still see this steep oxygen gradient and oxygen just doesn't penetrate very far into the biofilm. And this has important implications for biofilm growing within a wound in that oxygen is required for every stage of wound healing. And if bacteria are consuming a lot of oxygen, regardless of what bacteria it is, this could have uh, impair um, wound healing. And just to, to demonstrate that, I've got an example of some work we did with a, a live mouse. And here we have a Pseudomonas aeruginosa infected wound on the back of a, a mouse. And we're using the microelectrode to penetrate. And you can see the two different shades of blue are, are two different locations within the wound. But again, you see this steep oxygen gradient. And you know, in the dark blue circles, it comes up a bit near the end and then goes back down. That could be due to a, a pocket within the uh, biofilm or wound, or it could be oxygen coming from the wound bed from blood supply. But regardless, we see this steep oxygen gradient. And if we excise that wound from the back of the mouse and put it on a Petri dish and profile it again, we still see that same oxygen profile, okay? And we've done similar experiments with human wounds where we um, excise a portion of the human wound, we put it on a Petri dish, and we measure that same type of oxygen gradient through the biofilm. So one way is that these biofilms can impair wound healing is by consuming oxygen. And then also in a wound, I have to mention that the, if the wound is infected, you'll often have infiltration of lots of neutrophils. And this is uh, from that mouse model that I showed earlier with the steep oxygen gradient. But you can see in this slide, in the upper panel and the lower panels, that there's a lot of neutrophils in that wound. And neutrophils, through their oxidative burst, consume a lot of oxygen. However, they're not very effective at clearing biofilm. So that's another reason or another way in which the biofilm can cause reduced oxygen within the wound. So in summary of that, neutrophils are in, can be ineffective for clearing the biofilm, but they still have the effect of further reducing oxygen concentration. Okay, so not only we get these chemical gradients in the biofilm, and that could be oxygen or substrates that aren't penetrating into the center of the biofilm, and it can also be products that are being produced within the biofilm and then are, it, are at lower concentrations around the periphery of the biofilm. And this has some um, important impacts for the physiology or the phenotype of the bacteria within the biofilm. And so this is a Staphylococcus epidermidis biofilm. It's a cross-section through the biofilm. And so you can see the green band at the top of the biofilm has been um, stained to show newly synthesized DNA. So what you see there in green is bacteria that are actively dividing and synthesizing DNA. 
And at the top where there's lots of oxygen that's occurring, there's also a thin band of green at the bottom, which is probably fermentative bacteria. And so the, they're getting substrate from substrates from below and fermenting them and causing some activity there. But actually the bulk of the biofilm and the, the red is just a counter stain. Well, those are bacteria that are alive, but they're not synthesizing DNA, they're not dividing. So they're dormant bacteria. Some of them may be dead, but for the most part, they're dormant bacteria. And so if you tried to kill this biofilm with an antibiotic that targets DNA synthesis or inhibits DNA synthesis, the dormant bacteria that aren't dividing within the center would not be killed, okay? So a lot of antibiotics are, um, impact DNA synthesis. And the same thing is true for protein synthesis. So this is a Pseudomonas aeruginosa biofilm. And you can see um, this has been stained to show or manipulated to show newly synthesized protein in green. And again, with the red counter stain, and you can see that all the bacteria that are actively synthesizing protein are at the periphery of the biofilm. And in the center of the biofilm are dormant cells. And so if you tried to kill this biofilm with an antibiotic that inhibits protein synthesis, again, you would kill the outside bacteria, but you wouldn't kill the dormant bacteria within the center of that biofilm. And so in summary, these chemical gradients result in these regions with, with dormant bacteria, okay, which make a lot of antibiotics less effective. But the other important consequence of this is we get these anaerobic zones, and that not only can make bacteria that require oxygen dormant, but it also creates a niche in which anaerobic bacteria can grow. And that leads into the next topic I wanna to talk about, which is the polymicrobial nature of wound biofilms. And so here's a scanning electron micrograph that's been colored, just showing that there's different bacterial morphotypes representing different bacterial species in this wound, wound specimen. And so Dr. Randy Wolcott published a paper in 2016 with the results of sequencing the 16S gene, which is a way to identify bacteria, from 3,000 uh, patients. And they found no correlation with wound type or patient demographics. So the patients have different communities, different bacteria. But as I showed you before, that biofilms can have general mechanisms to inhibit wound healing. So it might not be um, any pathogen in specific. But Staphylococcus definitely predominated in 63% um, of the wounds. It was most abundant, followed by Pseudomonas, mostly Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And most wounds had between two and five species of bacteria greater than 1% abundance. And some wounds had, you know, 10, 15 species. So it varies from wound to wound, but the majority of wounds are polymicrobial. And as well as Staphylococcus and Pseudomonas, anaerobic bacteria are very common. And so Fingoldia, Anaerococcus, and Peptonophilus are the gram-positive anaerobic cocci. Very hard bacteria to grow in culture. They're usually not detected by culture, but they make up relatively high proportions of the bacteria in some of these uh, biofilms. And of course, I've already talked about the importance of oxygen in wound healing, and if these bacteria are present, that's a definite indicator that the conditions somewhere within that wound are anaerobic, which is not conducive to healing. And so here's an example of that, of the community diversity. This is a wound specimen from a subject with a pressure ulcer. There, there was no signs and symptoms of infection. The patient hadn't been receiving antibiotics when this specimen was collected. And the first thing I wanna point out in this slide is the biofilm, which is indicated by the red arrows. And the biofilm is really subtle. You know, it's not a big mushroom-like structure in this case. And that we often see that in chronic wounds where the, you know, in some cases we'll see a thick biofilm, but often the biofilm is kind of subtle and hard to find even microscopically. 
So in this case, they did quantitative culture and they found Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Bacillus fragilis. And the wound was also PCR positive for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. However, when we did 16S sequencing on this wound, we found that 96% of the bacteria in this wound were Peptonophilus or Anaerococcus genus. So the bacteria that are being indicated by culture techniques are not the bacteria that are predominant within this wound. So that's an important factor. Okay, and these wound communities can change over time, and particularly when the wound is being treated, and that's what I've shown in this example. So this wound was sampled at week one when the patient entered the study, and we see a very high proportion, about 65% of anaerococcus. And so we have anaerobic bacteria predominant within this wound. Um, the subject was treated with a cadexamer iodine dressing, and at week two, the community structure really hadn't changed. It looks very similar to week one. And then from week two to through week eight, the patient was treated with a silver dressing and a metronidazole gel. Now, metronidazole is an antibiotic that specifically targets anaerobic bacteria. And what you observe, can observe here is after that uh, change in the topical treatment, we get a huge decrease in anaerococcus. So the targeted bacteria comes down. Um, at the same time, the staphylococcus population jumps up. So it's kind of taking over that niche. Um, however, then over time, the staphylococcus uh, population drops back down. The population of Carini bacterium comes up. And this, um, this shows relative abundance, but it doesn't tell you the amount of biofilm. However, this uh, wound did progress um, and eventually went on to heal. So in summary, um, with polymicrobial biofilms, that these biofilms inhabit most wounds, and culture results might not indicate the predominant species in this wound because they may represent difficult to culture species. Thank you very much.